Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Last Word on Sens podcast. And joining me this week, making his return to the podcast, it's Graham Nichols. Graham, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going today, man? Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. It's uh, always fun to join your show. Uh, everything's going well. Can't complain. What about yourself? Yeah, pretty good. Just, uh, I don't know if I'm enjoying the weather changes that have happened this week, but it's gone from uh, snow to rain back to snow. So uh, definitely the classic Canada February weather, but uh, lots to talk about, at least in, in uh, the Sens world here. So that should be exciting. And uh, I got to admit, this week's been a little strange because they uh, they had three days in a row off, which hasn't been a, a popular occurrence since that COVID break there, but uh, it's been a, been a nice week to at least kind of just recharge and get some other stuff done. Yeah, and they're not going to have that for a while, right? They're playing like almost every second night in March. So uh, I'm sure the players enjoyed having a nice little three-day break. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they've uh, they've definitely earned it with, you know, I would say how they played. I, I think maybe if you've looked at their record just over the past, uh, you know, seven or eight games, it doesn't scream anything too special. You know, coming out of the All-Star break, I think they're – they're about 500-ish. They're, they're four wins, three or four losses, and an overtime loss, I want to say, maybe in there too. But, um, you know, give, given the uh, um, the roster they've had, it's been definitely, an, um, I don't know if impressive is the right word, but at least an admirable run uh, of games here. You know, they, they uh, obviously, Batherson, Norris, Shabbat have all been out uh, for a stretch here. Shabbat made his return the other night, but... Um, you know, what's your opinion of the last two weeks or so here, Ben, since the All-Star game and their return? Yeah, I, I, there's multiple ways to look at it, right? I think, like, if you look at the surface numbers, you know, Ottawa's doing okay. You know, they're 5-5-1 five, five, in the last 11 games played. Uh, their goaltending has kept them in every game. I think, like, you look at their 5-on-5 five five save percentage, like Matt Murray, Forsberg, and Gustafson combined to stop, like, 94.8% of the 5-on-5 five five shots. So that if you get... You know, if your goaltenders are stopping almost 95% of the five on five shots, you're going to be competitive and you're going to have a chance to win almost every game, uh, provided you can get the goal scoring. Um, they aren't finishing as highly, but you mentioned key injuries to guys like Norris and, and Batherson. I think that's all that's where you lose a lot of that finishing uh work. But you know, the team's been five, five, and one despite some key injuries. Uh, Thomas Shabbat being another that you mentioned, and uh, they've been competitive in every game. And I think you know, for a team that's rebuilding and, and has had some strings where it's been, it's been tough to watch at times. I think, you know, being competitive in games is all you can really ask for at this point, especially when they're missing as many guys as they are. But um, you know, if you look, if you dig a little deeper, you, you look at some of the possession numbers and the shots, the shot metrics, and you know, they're still getting, they're still getting a shot on a regular basis. And I think if you look just from a competitive standpoint, the goaltending has kept them in a lot of games and there's still some issues under the hood that need to be addressed. And, uh, but the team's been competitive and, and, you know, Given the injury situation, I think that's all you can really ask for. Yeah, I mean, they're, uh, you know, just their, their league-wide rank right now is Corsi 4. They're, they're 27th in Corsi 4 and around there in expected goals as well on the whole year and uh, 25th in the whole year. And, you know, that's something that you definitely want to see improve. And, um, you know, it felt like, you know, maybe they're getting some adjustment because I thought at the earlier in the year they were – there were at least stretches, you know, definitely it's not like they were ever a dominant possession team or anything like that, but there was at least stretches where it felt like they were playing better and just not getting the goaltending. So, you know, that's aggressively flipped and, you know, hopefully it can land somewhere in the middle because uh, nine, you know, as you said, 940 goaltending, it's just not sustainable long-term. It's not something you should expect to, to have long-term, but it's been at least nice to see in a small stretch when they really needed it here. And, 
Uh, yeah, that's been the big thing for me too. Is you know most of these games have been have been pretty watchable. I think there was there was one or two in there where uh, you know that that Rangers game on the Sunday at a five p.m. If you would ask me what a Sunday five p.m. start feels like, that would be the game because that was uh, not the most thrilling thing in the world. But uh, every other game's been you know pretty entertaining. The game against the Wild was exciting. Um, you know uh, the the Capitals four one win was exciting and. Um, you know, e- even a couple of the losses against Boston there, they lost three, two in overtime on the Saturday against Boston, you know, that was at least a, a fun game to watch at times. So, um, you know, it feels a little cheap to be saying that again, because I feel like that's what I said a lot last year was that by the end of the year, it's like, at least the games are exciting, but yeah. with, with so many injuries, I, I just, I, I really don't know what to say because it's so hard to get a, a good read on this team in terms of where they actually are. Yeah, and that's a good point, right? They played a lot of good competitive games against good teams, right? Like you mentioned, Boston, New York. Uh, that weekend, the games weren't necessarily the most entertaining, but two afternoon games against those teams that were close, um, and they lost by a goal against each, right? So that's all you can ask for. But like the Minnesota game, the Washington game, the Carolina game in particular, was uh, it was just fun hockey to watch. It was just entertaining. And, you know, they're they're in these games, and, and they beat some good teams during the stretch as well. So I, I, that's something to hang your hat on. But um you know like you're right i think in, in a sense like even last year down the stretch you know you're trying to take positives and, and you talk about building momentum and, and taking this thing the next step forward like i think most fans in ottawa and, and fans across the country or fans of the senators will, will look at this team and everybody's kind of waiting for the shoe to drop it, it's enough about these positive small stories that are like building blocks for the next season it's eventually eventually there's going to be a time that comes where this team has to be more competitive soon. And, you know, in one of my recent articles that I put on, on the the blog, uh, I talked about Ottawa's core age and, and you look at guys like Brady Kachuk, Thomas Shabbat, Josh Norris, uh, Drake Batherson, like these, these guys are all, you know, 22 years and older. Um, so they're between that core age of 22 and 27 where they, statistically um, just from a probability standpoint, they do, these are probably going to be their best offensive years as NHL players. And this is kind of the window and I don't want to put stress or pressure or fear in a fan base to not enjoy these moments, but Ottawa is eventually going to have to build around these guys, create more depth, create, improve the talent level. Um, And it can't just be like a gradual thing. Eventually there's going to be that moment where they have to kind of go all in with this group that they have and improve the talent around them because they, like if, if you're going to win, if you're going to have a good competitive championship team, like this is kind of the window to do it. And you can't, you can't necessarily wait until they're all like 25, 26, 27 years old, because by that time, the window's even going to be even smaller. So this is kind of the window and it's got to get better quick and it's got to be, get better soon. And I, I don't want to put a lot of pressure on the organization because I, I, there's some definite pitfalls to, going all in at the wrong time or making rash decisions and, and foolish decisions, especially in terms of asset management. But eventually it's, it's starting this off season, especially like this is kind of the moment where they have to weigh all the factors and push all in with the group that they have. Yeah. There's obviously different ways to build a cup contender, but you know, the, the two biggest ways I think, you know, that we've seen over the past decade is either guys on their ELC, whether that's, you know, uh, uh, Malkin and Crosby back in those 09, 010 years or Taves and Kane in their early years with Chicago, or have those franchise level players at a discount and then find some insane depth around it. And, and that I think would be more of the later Pittsburgh molds and obviously the Tampa mold too, where they, they have those discounts. But the thing is, those teams were loaded with elite talent and, you know, Ottawa has some really good pieces, but 
I don't know if Ottawa really has a Kucherov or, you know, uh, a headman or a Vasilevsky in that, like, uh, you know, the, the depth is just, you rattle off some of those teams depth and it's just depth and it's just insane. And um, again, like, I'm not saying, you know, you have to be that team because if everyone could be Tampa or the Pittsburgh teams, I mean, it would be, that's what everyone would do. Right. So, uh, but yeah, I definitely agree where it's like, it, it's getting to the point now where uh, a lot of these guys are not, you really, it's getting to the point where you can't consider guys like Brady Kachuk young, like uh, it's not old or anything like that, but you know, he, he's getting to the point where you need to start doing something around them. And it's only, um, you know, especially with an internal budget, it's only going to get uh, harder to do, you know, with Brady's extension kicking in, uh, obviously uh, uh, Batherson, he's on a, an amazing deal. You're not complaining about his AAV, but you know, that that's more money than the 900 K that he, that he's making or he's made over the past couple of years. Right. And, and that's going to, keep- you got Norris, you have Norris and Foreman's anywhere I face this summer as well. So like the internal exactly. cost of keeping those, those guys together is going to be significantly higher than it was. You're right. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, that's going to eat away at what you can use as uh you know, to, to improve the depth and stuff like that. And obviously Stutzlow will be up in uh, not this summer, but the, but the next summer too. So, and it's not like that's a, there's worse problems to have than having to pay your good players, but it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, I think sometimes fans get a little too caught up with it. All oh, these guys are still super young. We got lots of time to go make a playoff run. And then suddenly it doesn't happen because you wasted the best years of their career. So it'll definitely be interesting to see what they do because, you know, even as, recently as a couple of weeks ago, there was talk that, you know, Ottawa might be in at the deadline of, I don't know if buyers are the right word, but if people with term came up or young enough that they would be in on a piece like that. And, you know, I, I've kind of gone back and forth on it with that different guests on this podcast. And, you know, I'll pose a question to you, you know, if there's uh would you be open to, you know, spending a first round pick this year uh, for what kind of player would it have to be to move or would you, you know, be open to it at all? I, it's so hard to say because it's a very, uh, it depends on the player. I think first and foremost, without knowing who the player is, it's easy to get up in like, would you, should you, but until you talk about a specific player, I think it's, it's hard to get into the nuance. It's a very nuanced conversation. And um, like, I'd never be adverse to, to spending, you know, prospect capital or, or what have you on a good player, provided that player, you know, fits, fits the core vision. You know, if it was a player who was in his like late twenties, early thirties, um, probably not like, you know, for, for a team with limited financial resources that is afraid to spend in the cap ceiling, or maybe not even afraid, but just doesn't have the financial wherewithal to do it. I think the one thing that you can always bank on uh, is having draft capital and prospect capital, assuming you hold on to those picks. And I think that's something that Ottawa ha- should have in spades, especially um, for this upcoming draft. So um, you got to be hesitant to do that stuff. It's got to be, it, I, I think if Piridorian kind of makes one of those deals, it has to be like, uh, it has to be a guaranteed win. It can't be, it can't be one of those humming high Matt Duchesne kind of trades where you can see there's, they're, they're taking on a lot of risk. And, um, you know, we, we've seen some of the names be mentioned in, in recent weeks, like Ottawa's been scouting Minnesota, um, pretty regularly over the past number of weeks and min, uh, sorry, not Minnesota, but Winnipeg's another team that, uh, he's been looking at as well. And I think, you know, if, if Dorian's going to swing for the fences and, and swing a deal for like a Kevin Fiala and stuff like Fiala is in the, you know, he's going to be an RFA and then there's a lot of pressure. He has one year left of restricted free agent, uh, eligibility, and then he becomes a UFA. So, you know, if, if you can get a good player back, he's got a lot of term and, and cost control. I think that 
that's something that the organization should look at. But, um, you know, we, we talk about making this team more competitive and everything else, but at the same time, I think they're in a, they're in a really precarious position because you, you look at the prospect depth and, and everything that's there right now, like beyond Jake Sanderson, who should be a top of the lineup kind of player. I just don't see a lot of safely projectable guys who should play at the top of this lineup, whether that's, you know, they do have prospects like Ridley Gregg, um, Tyler Boucher and everything else, but I don't think those players are necessarily guaranteed to play up the lineup. They might be like third line players at best. And that's not being down on the prospects. That's just the, the reality of Ottawa's situation right now. And, you know, if you start, if you start moving a lot of picks and assets to bring in a lot of talent, um, you run the risk of 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 not bank bankrupting the farm system, but you could leave it very thin. And then as this team matures and gets better over the next like three, four years, when they're when you know when conceivably when this team should be a lot better, you don't have that that group of assets that you can start flipping to actually like get the get the final pieces that you need to push this team over the top. So that's something that the organization is going to have to be conscious about. And you know, for a guy who doesn't have a track record of of bringing successful professionals to augment the depth on this team i think that's that's got to be the greatest concern for senators fans i like to, we're about to it feels like we're very close to turning the corner and, and pushing this team towards a little bit more competitiveness but at the same time um it's it's kind of guarded optimism because you're waiting to see what this organization will do to address its depth and i don't have based off tr dorian's track record i know he brought in pierre mcguire to help um, based off the scouting staff's decisions and and everything else, I'm a, I have like kind of like tepid optimism that this that this organization is capable of avoiding the risks that they've taken on in the past because they've been burned before and it, they've been burned regularly. And you know, you look at you look at the list of players that Dorian's brought in as veterans over the past like five five years, and a lot of them get flipped out very quickly because they just don't work out. And you know, to his credit, he's been able to get rid of some of the problems. Like Evgeny Dadunov is a perfect example. Like he wasn't a good fit for this team and he got it from under the contract that he signed, but that contract was given in the first place and it just didn't work out. And I think at some point you have to sit back and evaluate, like, why aren't many of these professionals who come into this organization working out? Michael Delzato, buried in the minors, another example. Like, why aren't these guys working out? What are we doing to evaluate these players? Why, why are, <laughs> maybe it just could be as simple as like, it's, it's hard to attract a good veterans to Ottawa because the team's not winning right away. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors, but eventually it's got to get better, right? Like it has to get better. It's going to be, it's going to be really tough for this team to move forward and be more competitive. Yeah. I think, um, you know, at different times we've called the last two summers, quote unquote, make or break for the senators. And, and obviously that, um, the Stutzla Sanderson draft when they had three and five, that was definitely a franchise changing summer. And, you know, I think, I mean, personally, I was even more optimistic they could have done more that summer than simply going and getting Matt Murray and, and signing him to a giant contract. I, I would have rather them see, you know, go a different avenue and either add depth a different way or, or you know, even take a swing for an RFA at that point. But I, I think this summer is going to be the make or break summer for Dorian. And I say that because I think this is the summer where, it's, I don't know, last chance is the right uh, right word, but last chance before it really starts harming your team, I think, where he's going to have to show that he's changed how he evaluates what what depth guys he wants to bring in to, to make an actual impact here. Because if he swings and misses on two or three guys again this summer, I, I just like that. That is way more crucial uh, than it has been in the past couple of years. You know, the past couple of years, that hasn't been ideal, but at the end of the year, you can chalk it up to, oh, well, it's OK. We actually got a top 10 pick and that might be better long-term if you swing and miss again next year and they're in the same spot, you know, 
I just have a hard time how anyone can sell that as an actually good thing for the franchise at this point when it's been, well, I mean, that'll be three or four summers in a row of really swinging and missing if it happens on, you know, a couple key players. Oh, for sure. And I like in years past too, I don't think there'd ever be a threat internally to Pierre Dorian's job. Right. I think, you know, in terms of attracting quality candidates to positions uh, with the Ottawa senators, I think like, not a lot of people are willing to take a job working for Eugene Melnick. I think that's just one of the realities, right? And um, Pierre Maguire has been one of the few exceptions in recent years. And I think that is an internal threat, like whether it's acknowledged or not. Like, I think that's finally someone who's quote unquote credible. who You could actually see uh, ascending to Dorian's job. If, if this offseason doesn't go well, the team gets off to a poor start. Um, you know, that's one of the things that that's one of the major talking points uh, on radio. When you look at like Dorian's availabilities over the past week, two weeks, like that was the big thing. It's like, yeah, we've been off to really bad starts for the past three years and it's kind of put us behind the eight ball right away. And we've been trying to play catch up during the seasons ever since. And, you know, if the team gets off to a poor start next, next fall, um, I could see him being outed uh, even this summer. Like if, if, if the ownership wants a change and, uh, you know, he's the owner's impulsive and he, you know, I, I could totally see it. It's just one of those things. McGuire is a, a recognizable name and it's just a change and it's a departure from the past. And I could totally see him go, going in a different direction, but um, it, it's going to be interesting. I think there's a lot of, there's, there are a lot of holes, right? The team has almost like 30 million. I think they have like 10 skaters. I was looking at cap friendly before coming on your show. And I think they have 10 skaters signed under contract right now. Um, and they have about $30 million in cap space. So like in theory, they have a lot of flexibility for what they want to do. Um, in reality, I have no idea what the budget is going to be. Um, I think COVID COVID's had a huge negative impact on this team's budget, what they're able to spend. I, I I'm assuming the owners hemorrhaging cash like crazy. So what they're able to do might be totally different than what projections may be. So it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be really interesting to see what this team can do. And uh, just the commitment to helping this team win. If the owner takes a financial hit next year to put a more competitive product on the ice to help encourage fans to come back and support this team more. Um, maybe that's, maybe that's the route that they take, but um, it's, this summer is going to be pivotal and, you know, they, the blue line, I think needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, you look at the second line, if Tim Stutzel is going to be the center uh, long-term, I think that's fantastic. That gives him a lot of depth and flexibility. It's a lot harder to find a quality center than it is to find a winger. But, um, you know, if, if you're moving Stutzel off the wing, then you probably need to bring in another left winger. Uh, you look at the right-hand side. I like Sokolov. I think he could be a nice depth piece for this organization in the future, maybe as early as next season. Maybe it'll take a little bit longer, but they, they need another top six right winger as well. And how are they going to get those pieces? You know, are they going to trade prospect capital to get them? Are they going to sign guys as free agents? What are they going to do? And then you look at the blue line. Uh, I think you got Jake Sanderson, Tom Shabbat on the left-hand side. Those are awesome foundational building blocks. Um, those guys are going to be huge pieces of the blue line moving forward. But on the right side, I think there, there's some huge question marks. Is, is Nikita Zaitsev, who's having a terrible season this year, is he a long-term piece? He's got another year or two left on his deal. Artem Zub's entering the last year of his deal. Um, and then he becomes an unrestricted free agent. What, what's going to happen long-term with them? Um, are guys like Lassie Thompson, Jacob Bernard Doc are ready to play? If they are ready to play, how good can they be right away? Uh, and that's another huge issue. Like how good is the right side going to be? And if, if Zub, if there's no stability or long-term stability with Zub, like all of a sudden the right side of the blue line looks like a mess. And for, for a team that's been caved in defensively uh, and has struggled to get out of the defensive zone, once the offensive team gains control of the blue line, 
um, they struggled to defend on the, off the cycle. And it's been that way for a number of years. And, and that's led to like a number of territorial disadvantages. That's why they get crushed in the shot, the shot metrics. And um, it, it's going to change. The, the blue line has to change. It has to improve for this team to contend. And how are they going to do it? And those are like the big question marks for this team. And even goaltending, like Matt Murray's had an excellent spell. Like I, if you asked me like two months ago, I would have wrote Matt Murray off completely. Um, you know, once he got sent down to Belleville and was waived throughout the league, nobody took a, nobody took a flyer on him. Like I thought he was done a hundred percent thought he was done and he's bounced back strong and he's had a great, uh, last month, but he's hurt again. And, you know, you look at his tenure, even beyond Ottawa, uh, his last few years in Pittsburgh, like he's struggled to stay on the ice consistently. And I think that's adversely affected his confidence and performance on the ice. And, you know, it, it's, it's it's got to be difficult and frustrating for the organization where you finally get a guy who's starting to play well and feel good about himself. And then he gets hurt again. And if, you know, you look past him to Forsberg, who's had a real strong uh, last two months and he, and he's kind of helped boy things a little bit while Murray was out and Gustafson wasn't playing at a high level and he's a free agent at the end of this year. What do you do with him? Gustafson has a one-way contract next season, but he hasn't played consistently and hasn't played consistently well this season after having a strong finish the last year. So I think there's a lot of question marks at the goaltending position moving forward that even extend beyond next season. Um, and it's, it, there's lots of question marks and it's going to be fascinating to see how this all unfolds in the offseason. Because like you said earlier, this is going to be a pivotal, pivotal moment for the franchise. And it's, I don't want to say Pierre Dorian's job is going to be on the line, but there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to solidify this roster and ensure that it's on the right footing uh, to move forward in the next two to three years. Yeah. Unless they come up with a ton of injuries again, like they had this year, again, next year, I just don't see how, like if this team finishes even bottom 10, I want to say, but especially near that bottom five range, I, if that happened again next year, I really don't see how Dorian would keep his job past next summer. I just, I, with, you know, it, when Melnick had made it sound like he wanted to compete this come like this past year here, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk this past off season about how Melnick wanted to take a step and, and was maybe frustrated with where the team was. And, you know, so I think if they doubled down, I just don't see it. And um, yeah, what, what you mentioned about Ned is perfect on what I wanted to touch on there because uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Like Matt Murray has been uh, just outstanding for, you know, since he came back from Belleville, like, and I, I hesitated to give him too much credit for a week or two there because it felt like every time we did this for the past two, you know, all last year we did this too. He would come back from being hurt or just not being good and being benched. And he would have one or two pretty good games, maybe even really good games. And, and it felt like a lot of sense Twitter would just kind of declare him back quote unquote, you know, he he's, here's the goalie. We paid 6.5 million or whatever, 6.25, whatever it was per year for. And then he would just slide back into his old habits and, you know, uh, really struggle again. And, you know, at the end of last year, there was about a five or six game stretch to end the year where he looked pretty good. And I remember people over the summer being like, no, he's solved. Trust me. He's really good. And we saw what happened to start this year, obviously. Um, so, you know, when he came back from Belleville and had a couple of good games, it was encouraging, but I, I didn't want to lean into anything too, too crazy because, you know, we've seen goaltending be sporadic and, and, you know, maybe that is still it, but it, it's getting to the point now where, I think you can at least be a little more encouraged that even if he's not the bona fide number one starter, you thought you were paying, he's not a complete disaster write-off. Like I was in the boat with you where I thought when he got sent down to Belleville, I thought there was a legitimate possibility that was the end of his NHL career, you know? And um, I think I'm at the point now where 
he's at least deserved the end of the year to show that that's not the case and probably part of next year. Um, that backup position, though, is where I'm really, really interested to see what happens because, um, you know, the, the, the amount that Murray has gotten hurt is just astonishing, really. Like, and, you know, I feel for the guy, but at the same time, it's kind of like Logan Brown syndrome where it's like, I want to see this guy get a chance. But if every time you get your chance, you get hurt two games into it. How, you know, how reliable can you really be to the organization? And that is where, you know, I think it's more of a question mark where a, I don't know even know what they would get for Forsberg on the, on the trade deadline market, because how often do you see goalies get traded? And this year I think is even more crucial. I'm uh, not crucial, but this year, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury is probably available. Jonas Corposalo sounds like he's available. Grice is probably going to be available from Detroit. And I feel like I'm even missing another team who's got a tan goalie as well. So it's, there is an influx of goalies that are going to be available, I Samsonov was another guy who's kicking around as a possibility. Like there's, yeah. a, there's, and the, the problem with the goaltending market is that like, people overvalue what they believe they have, and every year you see guys go for way less than what you anticipate their value is worth. And for a guy who's cleared waivers a number of times and he's bounced around the league and he's a little bit older, um, even though he's played, you know, at a league average rate, I think his save percentage is hovering around like nine fifteen or something. Um, like Forsberg's been incredible. He's had a great year. Um, um, from from that perspective, he's brought some stability to the position when their young goaltending prospect has has faltered a little bit, and you know maybe that maybe the Senators are looking at like a mid round pick if they decide to trade Forsberg. But I, I'm not anticipating like a second or third round pick. Like that no. seems that seems a little excessive for a guy who's just a backup goaltender. He's not going to step in and, and run with the job for like a number of games. Yeah, and and then the question becomes, you know, let's say it's a fifth round pick maybe for Forsberg would you take that fifth round pick and, you know, and just trade him so you can get Gustafson some starts or, you know, or would you rather keep Forsberg just in case you need the depth? Because I'm, I'm a big proponent of, I don't care where it is, but Gustafson needs games. And uh, I would rather it be in the NHL because I, you know, like I said, this is a make or break summer kind of for the team. Um, I, I'm not saying this year has to be make or break for Gustafson, but I think, you know, the end of the year splitting a tandem job with Murray where they can kind of go 50, 50 over the last 35 games or so. I think that would be a great opportunity to at least see what you have and try and evaluate where you are with him because he had that strong end last year and he just, he has not been able to play much this year is, you know, the, the honest truth, right? So mm-hmm. what would you do in net there? Would you, would you look to flip Forsberg or would you rather just keep him as insurance for the end of this year? I think the whole dilemma around Forsberg is created in part because Matt Murray can't stay healthy, right? Like if Matt Murray cannot stay healthy, then if you move Forsberg, the risk that you run is if Murray gets hurt again, you're running with some tandem that's Gustafson as your one. And then Sogard possibly coming up as your two or Mandalese coming up just to spell games and have Sogard play a number of games at Belleville. So that's the risk that you run. And Maybe maybe a situation where Ottawa carries three goaltenders is maybe not the worst thing in the world. Maybe they flip Forsberg and then just bring in a veteran like I don't know, um, guys bounced around like Eric Dell was a guy who, uh, who bounced around just to be like a veteran three who's never going to play, but he's just an insulator just in the event that um, in the event that a Murray gets hurt again. But um, you know, we talked about Gustafson's contract earlier. Like Gustafson is on a one way deal next year. Um, obviously the organization had faith in him at that stage of his career to be a full-time regular NHLer at that point, whether it's a, as a starter, or as a backup, they felt confident in his projections to give him that, that kind of contract. So uh, I, I think in the team's best interest and Gustafson's best interest, you kind of have to evaluate him uh, for the rest of the season at the NHL level. And um, 
this is the opportunity to do it. The games aren't meaningful. They're playing at the stretch. They're out of the postseason. You have a you have an unrestricted free agent uh, impending in Forsberg. There's no reason to to trot him out down the stretch um, if Gustafson's ready and available to play games. I, I think that's where they're at, and I think you want to give Sogard as many games as possible and Belleville down the stretch to improve his development as well. As well, so I think that's kind of where they're at. But uh, Murray's injuries again, just they're the they're the monkey wrench in all the plans, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, I was even arguing last year, I didn't think they need to bring Forsberg back for this year because I would have been okay just seeing them sign a third goalie. Like, you know, obviously not, uh, I don't think Sens fans would be very thrilled to see Aaron Dell uh, brought to the team now, but you know, it's a a name like that, where it's like a guy who, you know, is going to pass through waivers. And if for whatever reason he doesn't, it is not a big deal that you lost him. but you know, he can be there as an insurance. So you're not bringing a 21 year old up to backup, but you know, I I was hoping to see Gustafson up at at points this year, but I think it, you definitely need it to end the stretch run because even into next year, like I just, uh, and I don't think they will bring Forsberg back, but I just don't see what running out of tandem like Murray and Forsberg would do for you next year. Even if you get like nine, 11, nine, 12 ish goaltending, like maybe that's good enough to get you, you know, a little better, but I'd rather go with an upside that I've seen from Gustafson. Whereas, you know, Forsberg, it feels like he, he's one of the weirdest goalies I've ever seen. He either completely steals a game and will make a 44 save performance, or he'll let in two goals that like, you go, how, how on earth is an NHL goalie letting those in? And, and it doesn't feel like there's much in between. Right. But it kind of balances out his save percentage. So, yeah, I, I, and I wouldn't be that opposed to, to running with three goalies, you know, if that just means Forsberg has to be healthy scratched for 20 games to end the year, like, yeah, it's not ideal for him, but at the same time, like, you don't really owe him anything, you know, like you've given him an NHL job for the past two years. And, and honestly, you've given him a, a pretty good videotape to, to bring to other NHL teams this, this summer, if he wants as a free agent, you know, I don't think he needs to play with the final 30 games here technically on the ice. So if there's not a good enough deal and they want the, the kind of um, backup, just in case Murray does go down again, you know, I understand that, but you know, I, I think if, if, if you get offered a fourth or fifth round pick at this point, I would probably just take it. And um, the other thing I want to clarify too, I, I doubt most people would understand, but Murray was obviously hurt. And then I, he had a kid the other day as well. I don't think you or I are blaming him for missing time for having a kid here. It, it's oh no, no. When we uh, speak about it, it's the injuries that we're talking about of just like him being unreliable. But uh, I figured I should clarify that just just in case anyone was wondering. But um, yeah, it'll it'll be really interesting what they do with the goaltending because and you know I feel like I've I've said this a lot of times, but it's just this team could look really 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 different next year. You know, just from the the bottom of the lineup turnover, as you mentioned, like if Stutzler's going to play two C, I've really liked what Formanton's brought to the team, but. I think you could absolutely, you absolutely need another middle six winger for that left side there. And I don't think Connor Brown should be your second right winger long-term either. Right. So. No, I think if Ottawa was going to be a strong team, I think everybody would agree that if those guys are on your third line, it's probably a better sign than if both are playing on the second line. Yeah. So, you know, that that's going to be a lot of turnover, probably on the fourth line. You're looking at a couple of new guys, ideally for your top six or, you know, one for your third line, one for your second line, however you want to do that. And, and then again, on the d- defense core, like that's such an interesting, interesting way to go because, you know, 
I, I've seen a lot of people just kind of penciling in JBD and Thompson as guys who, you know, might be ready in, in the next year or so. And I've liked what I've seen out of them, but you know, just what we know from NHL prospects, odds are at least one of Sanderson, JBD or Thompson are not going to work out long-term in the NHL. And I feel pretty confident betting that Sanderson is going to be a good NHL player, but you know, again, like how often do we, do we see prospects overvalued and you can't just, you know, like if you're penciling in JBD and Thompson as the the top two right-handed defensemen going forward for this team, you need to have a backup plan because very, very, very likely that's not going to happen. Right. So I don't, I don't envy the position they're in, but at the same time, they've kind of put themselves in the same position. So I, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what they do to play it this year because um, it's not like they have a ton of pieces to sell at this trade deadline either, right? Like Chris Tierney, I think is a name that if they can get anything for, they will. Um, but other than that, like Tyler Ennis, maybe. Um, wow, you're looking at guys like Ennis, Josh Sanford, Brown, Sanford, yeah. Tierney, and Forsberg, right? Like those are the those are the unrestricted pieces. Uh, those guys are, you know, you'll be lucky to get middle round picks from them. Like I like fourth round picks. You're probably looking at most of those guys. Uh, I think where it get kind of gets intriguing though, is like Nick ball, right? Like impending, impending UFA apparently allegedly turned down a three year deal worth two per, um, on an average annual value. Um, like I could see, I could see contenders kicking tires on him because he's big. He can skate. He, he hits, he finishes. He can play with the puck a little bit. He's great defensively. Uh, his offensive aptitude, I feel like, is played down because he's constantly put in a dump and chase role with Connor Brown, um, where he, you know he's over relying on his strengths, which is forechecking and trying to create turnovers and generating offense that way. But I feel like if he was in the right situation, he could put up more offense than he's shown at this point. Um, what could he return? I don't know. Maybe, maybe a late second round pick. I could see maybe for Nick Paul, but I think at some point the organization has to want to keep some of those guys as well. Um, he has value. He's young enough. He can play guys like him. Uh, I could see the organization. Maybe they meet in the middle and find like $2.5 million salary for three years or something like that. I, I could see something like that making sense, but Eric Branson is another guy who I could see the organization kicking tires on simply because he's a left shot defenseman. Who's going to get placed on the packing order behind Jake Sanderson and Thomas Shabbat. And he's, you know, I'm assuming Sanderson's going to eventually get power play time as well. So that limits, I would assume that would limit Eric Branson's value to this team, to this team, his value to this team long-term. And, you know, if he's not on your second power play unit, or if he's not on your top power play unit or power play unit, and, and, you know, if he's playing third pairing minutes, maybe that's not the best value for him. Maybe he has more value to the organization to fill, um, to address another need uh, for the team long-term. Because I think if Eric Brandstrom is playing top four minutes uh, as an undersized defenseman who can only move the puck, um, I, I just don't know. I just don't see him being a long-term fit for this team, especially based with, off what I've seen. Especially based off what I've seen in how DJ Smith has utilized him thus far. Well, he was the seventh defenseman in practice today, and I don't know if that means he's going to actually be healthy scratch against the Canadians tomorrow or not. But uh, yeah, like the Brandstrom one's interesting because there was a big debate on Twitter about that today too. Um, you know, where it was brought up about, um, you know, realistically, I I think it was uh, his points were brought up in question and, um, you know, it was, he has five points in 21 games and, you know, I'm kind of the aspect where it's like, if Branstrom's on your third pair, I'm fine with it. But that only, I I said that with the asterisk of, it depends what his trade value is, because if his trade value is only going to net you a struggling prospect, say like the Nolan Patrick trade this past year, where I think it was, uh, 
was it Cody Glass for for Nolan Pat? Two struggling prospects, basically, from a couple of draft years ago that were, I think it was branch of draft year, actually. And if that's the kind of return, I think I'd rather them just play him on the, even if he's the third defenseman on the left-hand side. And, you know, I guess my thing to this whole power play thing and and just general lack of disappointment or, you know, disappointment with the lack of production offensively is, I would uh, I would be concerned about that if he wasn't playing very well defensively, you know, um, by just about any at least advanced metric you look at. Uh, Brandstrom's one of their better actual in zone defenders. Um, obviously, he's not big, and that's all. He's always going to have to overcome that because you know he can't move the guys out of the way in front of the net or anything like that. And if he takes a hit, it kind of feels like just naturally he kind of gets. Uh, you know, that's looked badly upon, but you know, he's been statistically one of their better defenders and even just watching him, it's very obvious to see how well he can break the puck out and move the puck. And that's something they've sorely lacked, especially on that third pair. I feel like over the past decade, like I I can't remember the last time they had a legitimately good puck moving third pair defenseman. Maybe you want to say like Cleason or something like that, but even Branchdrum's got way more skill than him. So I don't know. It's just one of those things where if he could be the main piece, like if his trade value is bounced back to where he could be the main piece, where even if you're getting like a a third line left winger or, you know, a fringe top six left winger and you have to put Riff Branstrom in a pick, I'd be open to moving him then. But I just, I worry because I definitely agree where it's like, I think he could provide more value to other franchises, but I worry about getting burned on a trade if they're trading him just for the sake of getting him out of here. I'd rather them, even if it means he's got to play third pair left hand, I'd rather him do that for another year than, you know, just get traded for the sake of being traded. Yeah, fair. I just don't, you know, for a guy, I don't care about production. Like as long as he can move the puck and move it efficiently and it translates to, to Ottawa having, you know, greater ratios in terms of shots generated and, and giving the team a territorial advantage every time he's on the ice. But I just feel like whenever the opposition gains the puck, controls the blue line, works the cycle game, that's where he struggles. And it's just, it's one of those situations where I just, I I just don't see him ever playing a significant role on your team when this team's competitive. And that's not a knock to him. I think, I think he's just one of those young players who's like under the microscope a little bit more. Everybody wants to see him do well because he was the centerpiece in the Mark Stone deal. And I think if he wasn't part of that Mark Stone deal, I think everybody would look at him a little bit differently, less attention, uh, less pressure, everything else. But um, I just don't feel like he, I just don't see the upside. I just don't see him fulfilling his upside in Ottawa just because of the way the coaching staff values size uh physicality everything else and and in fairness even myself like i just don't see him ever playing a top four role on this team so if there's an opportunity to trade him to get a piece that you believe can help win or maybe you can put him together as part of a bigger package to land uh uh, someone else who could actually help this team over the next three two to three seasons maybe that's maybe that's where you get the value it's almost like the david runeblad thing all over again right yeah and again i i wouldn't be opposed to that at all i'm just not personally sure if he has that value league wide because of how they've handled them. But, you know, to your point, like if Brenstrom was Ottawa's third round pick in 2017, people would be going nuts about how well this development has gone and how much potential he's got as even just being maybe a fringe second pair guy or whatever. But because he was a, I think it was a first round draft pick or early second, but had all that hype and was the main piece coming back in that Mark Stone trade. It's looked on way less favorably of, you know, he's only a third pair defenseman, even if there is value. And um, yeah, I'm at the point where it's like, if he does have the value where like, I don't know, like 
let's say Brock Besser. I, I don't know if that's the perfect fit for Ottawa or not, but let's say like a player like that, 25 year old RFA, if Ottawa trade for him and sign him to a, a deal, you know, where he's, he's just send for six, seven, eight years. If he's a piece where he has to be going back the other way for Vancouver, I would be totally fine with that. But if you're flipping him for like, Zach Sanford, for example, you know, with the Logan Brown comparison, I would rather, even if he's not going to be providing maximum value, I would rather keep him. I do think the coaching staff thing is, is a good point though. Like I think DJ Smith has done an okay job, but the, the way he continues to use, use his D pair at times that just, I don't really have faith that he's not, he's going to lean into a full quote unquote, small decor or anything like that. And so I, I definitely feel like he could be the odd man out there. So I, yeah, I, I, I could, I think it's probably more likely than not that he's not a Senator at the start of next year. I just worry, you know, how that looks for them long-term in terms of what they get back for him. Yeah. And, and like you said, I think you're probably going to wind up seeing something make, like if he does wind up getting moved, I think it's going to be a struggling prospect for struggling prospect. I mean, like a Vili Hainola or something from Winnipeg could be a possible option, but um, yeah, it's just, for me personally, again, it's just it's it's a undersized defenseman who's supposed to move the puck well. His his ratios aren't necessarily terrific. So if he's not tilting the ice significantly in your favor, I think he's gonna be he's gonna be behind the eight ball to get in the lineup regularly and dress regularly. And I think we've seen that in the last like few months under DJ. And that's just the 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 unfortunate reality of Brandstrom's situation. Yeah, I mean, there's there's really not much more, you know. You can do if you're him. I would rather see him play than like if they're really healthy scratching him for Victor Mete uh, this year. I think that is probably a mistake because especially that that Mete Brown pairing, man, that has been a disaster. Like that is just there's a there's been a lot of bad hockey over the past couple of years, but like that is one of the pairings where it's like you just close your eyes every time you see them on the ice because it is just and for what like I liked Victor Mete last year and even I wanted to really like him this year and the two are just. They don't go well together, so I, I I don't know I don't know if I agree with that, but um, uh, they told him, right? Of, they just resigned him for another year, and he's yeah exactly well right now. So all of a sudden, you're the left side's congested. As soon as Sanderson arrives, it gets congested again. And is Brandstrom going to be your seventh guy, or is Nick Holden going to be your seventh guy? And you know, given given Holden's play, and obviously the coaching staff's confidence in him as a player, I think that's probably he's he's got the edge. Yeah. And, and, you know, even just penalty killing and stuff like that, you know, I think they would definitely lean to Holden, uh, you know, as, as a guy for the seventh defenseman coaches, usually like a guy who can step in and just play minimum five on five, but step in on the PK as needed. Right. And I think that probably describes Holden, at least in the coach's mind, better than Branstrom, um, no matter what, you know, even, even if Branstrom could improve his defensive game on the PK a little bit, but uh, last topic I wanted to touch on here with you uh, is, you know, the, the depth, uh, the depth forwards. I, I want to know what your thoughts are on um, uh, Parker Kelly and uh, uh, blanking on his name here. Uh, Mark uh, Castle. Castle. Thank you. I don't know why he's playing on his name. Uh, what was, they haven't played a ton, but what is your impression men in the uh, short sample? We've got to see out of those two guys this year. Uh, I like obviously work ethics huge, right? And both players uh, look to be working their ass off every time they, they're on the ice and Parker Keller, Parker Kelly, especially you notice it. Like whenever you watch, it's like those high effort um, guys. You just tend to see a little bit more and he's throwing his weight around the ice. He's not a huge guy per se, but you can see him every time he's on the ice trying to throw his body and trying to, 
you know, make the other team pay. And Caslick's uh, doing well on faceoffs. He looks like he's defensively apt. And uh, again, I think it's like to your point about the defenseman, right? You see guys like um, JBD and Lassie Thompson come in over small samples and you watch them play and you're like, oh, these guys look competent. They look like they could be NHL regulars. And I think there's, it's it's fine to say that. And, you know, it's great when your prospects arrive at the NHL level and you see them play a couple of games and you're like, they don't look at a place like that's a that's a great that's a great sign. But at the same time, I think there's a huge difference between stepping in and, and not looking at a place for a couple of games and then being competent, good NHLers who take it to the next level, go like a little bit above average, be competent depth players, not get caved in territorially. Um and have, you know, spend most of their time defending in their own end. I think, you know, Caslix looks fine. Parker Kelly looks fine. But I think, you know, you need a larger viewing sample to see. But I, I really like what I've seen from Parker Keller's Parker Kelly, especially. I think, like, that that guy could have a good – he could carve himself out a nice niche as an energy forward on a team's fourth line, for sure. Definitely. Parker, Parker Kelly's kind of who I see as, like, the – I don't know if – I'm not going to say long-term for any fourth liner, but, like, the biggest thing I could see is like, if they wanted to move on from Austin Watson, Parker Kelly could step right into that slot and do a lot of what he does just as well, if not better. And uh, I definitely agree with Castlick. They look fine. And, but Castlick's the one, and it's only 80 minutes of five on five time, but he's getting caved in like in terms of shot metrics and stuff like that. And, uh, you but know, they're he, using him in defensive faceoffs. Like there's a lot going yeah, on behind the scenes too, right? Like, yeah. It's not like he's just can't play hockey. And I think that's pretty obvious when you watch him, he looks pretty good, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, he's played nine games. He, you know, his underlying numbers aren't great, but he's been put in a tough position. Sure. I, uh, I'll be interested to see, you know, as he, uh, you know, maybe post deadline or even early next year, if he gets onto this team full time, kind of see if those can improve because, you know, the, uh, visually anyways, I, I can see a lot of small stuff and the effort is clearly there where it's not a problem. Um, so, you know, th- those are the kind of guys where I think post deadline this year, you know, I, I hope that they get a little more of a chance because, um, you know, I, I thought claiming Dylan Gambrel was fine when you needed bodies, but he has been bad this year. Like there's just no way around. He's played 33 games. He's dead last and sends forwards in Corsi and expected goals. And just, he just doesn't do a ton when he's on the ice. Like I would much rather see a couple of their fringe prospect guys who, you know, like Parker Kelly, I think is what 22, 23 years old. Like he's getting to the age where he's not really a prospect anymore. And I I would rather see them get some, some full NHL playing time just to kind of see what you can do with that. Right. No, especially because as you head into this offseason, like the last thing Ottawa needs to be doing is overspending on complimentary depth pieces, right? Like if you have young and inexpensive talent that could play on the fourth line, uh, especially guys who are going to be energy guys like Parker Kelly, I don't think will ever graduate to anything more than like a third line winger, right? And and that's not being down on the prospect. I think that's just kind of like the reality of the situation. Same with Caslick as a center, like that guy's probably going to be a third or fourth line center. Um, and if those guys, you can, if you can confidently pencil in those guys uh, next fall as your, as your fourth line energy guys, then that saves you from having to go out and spend like 1.2 million, 1.3, 1.4, even $1.5 million on, uh, fourth line centers and right wingers. So that money could be re- reallocated to help address the depth uh, in your middle six. You can, maybe you can spend a little bit more on a, on a second line guy to bring them in and, and kind of bolster the top six. And I think that's, that's kind of where Otto is at really. Like they need to, they need to maximize the limited resources that they have. And if they're able to save money on the fourth line, so they can inject more money at the top of the lineup. Like that's, that's ideally the best thing that could happen. And hopefully Castellick and Kelly can prove themselves to be competent players moving forward. And I, I agree with you. I hope they get a long audition for the rest of the season and they get a chance to show what they can do 
Yeah. And like to anyone wondering how big of a difference can the, like two, two players like that even make like the difference between saying playing, say Parker Kelly and Castlick in your lineup at 750 K each versus um, you know, I'll keep going back to him. It kind of feels like I'm picking on, but like he just Austin Watson at 1.5, like you're saving 750 K per person there. So, you know, if you get two of those players and that's even if it's 1.2 mil, five mil versus 6.2 mil for a, a second line winger, that could be the difference between persuading someone to come play for you or not, you know? And so, you know, especially when you're on a budget, I think any team should obviously be trying to do this, but especially when you're on a budget, you need to find those little edges, like being able to pay your third, fourth line guys as little as possible while still having them obviously be effective. You can't just put anyone there, but if you have guys and you know, they're going to be reliable, like that is, that is an invaluable piece for a team that, you know, probably needs every dollar it, it can get at this point. Yeah, and I think there's probably also something to be said about growing those guys internally. Like both of those players have been with the organization for a couple of years now, and like they've had a chance to grow and develop and play with guys uh, who've gone from Belleville to Ottawa. And I think that makes the camaraderie a little bit easier. And it, it just it's easier to get everybody pulling in the right direction if they're more comfortable and familiar with each other, right? It just makes for a better team experience. So um, that's that's just another element that I think is something that they should look at as well. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that's all. Touched on a bunch of good topics here today. Uh, plug some stuff. Where can people find you and your work? Uh, you can find my stuff at gnichols.substack.com. Uh, Roman today. Um, you can find me on Twitter at six ends and that's it, man. That's it. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'll definitely have to have you on again down the road as I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about as the season rolls on here. Appreciate it. Alex. Enjoy the game on Saturday. Yeah, you as well. Thanks so much to Graham for joining me. As always, it was a ton of fun recording with him. Uh, Go check out his stuff online, you know, where, where he plugged it. It's, it's really good work, so um, and just a good follow on Twitter overall. So, uh, as always, you can find the podcast at lastwordonsends.com, me on uh, Twitter at NHL Sends and stuff. Uh, if you want to check out my other podcast uh, with Chase McCallum, uh, it's about more about the the league itself. That can be found anywhere you're listening to this at the Eminem Hockey Podcast. And uh, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I'll be back at you in a week or two with another episode. <laughs>